following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. First Corinthians chapter 13. It was Jonathan Swift, who was the author of Gulliver's Travels. How many remember that one? He's the one who made this statement. We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Wow. This is an interesting statement, don't you think? Especially when you consider that our world is filled with all kinds of the language of love. I mean, it's all over the place, right? I mean, can listen to some samplings of some love song cliches. You'll, fam- you'll be familiar with many of these, if not all of them. Love is a many splendored thing. Love is all you need. I said that for the sake of the old Beatle fans. <laughs> Love conquers all. Love lifts us up where we belong. Love is in the air. Love changes everything. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love, remember that one? Love is all around. Just a couple of more. Maybe you can hear Whitney Houston singing it. And I, I, I. <laughs> Go we'll always love you. Not going to sing it. <laughs> Tempted. Or how about this one? Elvis. Take my hand. Take my whole life too. But for I can't help falling in love with you. It's everywhere, isn't it? The word love. It gets thrown around constantly and carelessly. It is used to describe our feelings for everything from God to chocolate from cars to pets, from football to family. And sadly, the the kind of love implied by the world's popular poems and songs bears little resemblance to the meaning of love described throughout God's word. And especially as it is exemplified in 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter, as it is often referred to, convicts us, and while at the very same time inspires us. Only God's word can do something like that, right? Convicts us and inspires us. It is doctrinally solid and spiritually enriching. A.T. Robertson, I think, accurately comments, Plato and many others have written on love. But Paul has here surpassed them all in, his, in this marvelous prose poem. It comes like a sweet bell right between the jangling noise of the gifts in chapter 12 and chapter 14. Fortunately, Paul's language here calls for little comment, for it is the language of the heart. And then I have added a heart captivated by God. 
The book of Exodus, some of you might remember when we did a study through that book a few years back, tells us that golden bells hung from the hem of the high priest's robe. And we are told from folks like Alfred Edersheim and other Bible scholars that these bells were made in such a way that they rang in harmony. Keep in mind now that everything in the Old Testament tabernacle and everything that had to do with the priestly garments were a foreshadow of, pointed to Jesus Christ, right? So when we talk about our great high priest, Jesus, people sometimes will ask, well, how do you know he's alive? How do you know that he is truly in heaven interceding on our behalf? Oh, church, this is when we should, this is when we could be able to say to them, listen carefully. And you will hear the harmonious ringing of the bells as he works through his body, the church. You see, the golden bells in biblical typology are a picture of manifestations of the spirit. It's what they are a type of. And so as people see the working of the Holy Spirit through words of wisdom and knowledge, prophecy through gifts of healing, faith and miracles, through tongues and interpretation, as they begin to see the reality of the spirit of Jesus sounding forth, through his body, the church, they will know that he is indeed alive. You see, according to Exodus chapter 39, verse 25, between each of the bells on the hem of the priest's robe was attached a pomegranate. So imagine the hem of the lower part of his robe, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate all the way around and is in the scriptures tell us that is was God's design and they were told to create it in that fashion a fruit the pomegranate a fruit which interestingly uniquely is related to the promised land how so well remember when the spies returned from the promised land even though 10 of them had a bad report but when they all returned from the promised land they came bearing and carrying grapes, huge grapes. But not only that, you'll read they also brought pomegranates. In Numbers 13, 23, we are told that. In the Song of Solomon, the pomegranate speaks of peace and certainty, but also of beauty and romance. That's Song of Solomon, chapter 4, and again in chapter 6. And the prophet Joel refers to the pomegranate in connection with joy in Joel chapter 1, verse 12. Where are we going with this? The New Testament equivalent is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, which is defined by the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, right? Joy, peace, Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and 
self-control. You see, without the pomegranate between the bells on the robe of the high priest, there would be nothing but clanging noise, irritable clanging noise. This was the case for the church at Corinth in the first century. Although Paul says they possessed every gift of the Spirit, he let us know they lacked none of those, but indeed lacked the fruit of the Spirit. Didn't lack in the gifts, they just lacked in the fruit. This led to all kinds of clanging noise, irritation, confusion, and division. This is why between his discussion of the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12 and again in chapter 14, Paul, if you will, beautifully inserts a pomegranate <laughs> in Scripture. Between chapter 12, between, between 12 and 14, chapter 13 is that pomegranate because it's a picture of and points to God's love, the fruit of the Spirit, as it is defined in Galatians chapter 5. And so let's explore this love chapter. And let's do so with the understanding that we aren't seeking only to be inspired or informed, but to be challenged and changed. Paul first talks about the importance of love. So look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have, a, have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The impressive acts that Paul lists here in verses 1 through 3, I like to refer to and call an intentional act of pushing the envelope. <laughs> in other words, the idea here is that he's pushing the envelope, he's he's creating, you know, notice all the words all in there, all faith, all miracle, all, you know, speaking even in, in a heavenly language kind of thing. He's, he pushes the envelope so he can argue from the greater to the lesser. The idea is this, even if we do works that are by all appearances miraculous, astonishing, and like off the charts extreme, they ultimately amount to nothing without the key ingredient of love. Without the motivating presence of this kind of love, the most eloquent, impressive speech, even of angels, would sound like a harsh clanging. Without love, our prophecies and revelations and knowledge and faith and kind deeds, absolutely worthless. And so, like I said earlier, the word love is not without its difficulties, 
The Greeks avoided that problem by using four words for love. Most of you are familiar with them, so I'll just briefly review these four Greek words that they had to describe love. Storge means affection. Storge is the kind of love which feels that you feel toward your, um, your cat or your dog. <laughs> That's what that first level of love was, that that word they had. The next one is eros. It refers to sexual or physical love. Then phileo, which we get our word Philadelphia from, speaks of brotherly love. Phileo says, if you're nice to me, then I'll be nice to you. It's conditional. But then comes agape. It is unconditional. It is a love that gives simply for the sake of giving, never expecting anything in return. It is how God loves us. People who do not know the Lord can experience the first three, those kinds of love. But for them, agape is impossible because it is only found in a relationship with God. Agape is the love of which Paul speaks when he says here, if I don't have love, I'm just making noise. It's all for naught. Jesus happened to say that faith only the side of a mustard seed could move mountains. You guys remember that statement? Matthew 17, verse 20. But Paul says, even though one has all faith, the fullest possible expression of faith, if it is without love, it doesn't amount to anything. Even if a person were so zealous totally gave themselves that they burned out for Jesus. Their zeal would mean nothing, would count for nothing without love. Paul follows his admonition on the importance of love as we've just seen with the, a definition of love by showing us the acts of love. And this is verses four through seven. Follow with me as I read these verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Here is a chart that shows you, I apologize for that the first part is kind of off the screen. It worked last night. It's a bigger screen. <laughs> but there's only one letter that's missing on this part of the thing. But you see here, what, this is exactly what we just read in verses 4 through 7, what love does and then what love does not. It is patient. It does not envy. It's not jealous. It is kind. So it doesn't boast, nor does it brag. Rejoices with truth. Does not delight in evil. It always protects. Does not dishonor others. Always trusts. It's not self-seeking. Always hopes. Is not easily angered. Always perseveres. Keeps no record of wrongs. Now, notice with me, looking at what Paul has written here, 
when we scan the list, we begin to realize that the negative elements on this side of the graph describe some of the very problems that the Corinthian church were facing. Love does not envy, doesn't get jealous, but the Corinthians were marred by jealousy and strife. Chapter 3, verse 3 is where we saw that. Love does not boast, does not brag, but the Corinthians boasted and allowed arrogance to flourish. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. We read here that love does not delight in evil, but the Corinthian church tolerated shameful and disgraceful situations. Chapter 6 and chapter 11. And it says love is not self-seeking, but the Corinthians had spiraled down deep into selfish egotism. We saw that just in chapter 10. The contrast could go on, obviously. And even though, thank you, Judy, you can take that off. Even though the Corinthian church had plenty of money, an enviable location, countless spiritual gifts, and a legacy of some outstanding Bible teachers had come their way into their church. They lacked the one thing they needed most, the greatest thing, actually, love was missing. Verse 5 says that love is not easily angered. Put differently, love is simply not provoked. Simply not provoked. Phileo, eros, storge, they can become irritated. They can be aggravated. They can be provoked. Agape can't. If you are one who always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres, utilizing the gift of wisdom in order not to enable, of course, people will accuse you of being blind to certain situations. They just don't get it. Because agape love is not blind. Quite the opposite, actually. Agape love sees more, but because it sees more, it is willing, it is able to see less. What does love see? It sees the price that was paid on the cross of Calvary for the person or the situation that threatens to make us mad. Bitter. How can we exhibit this kind of love? The only way is to let Jesus Christ live it and do it through us. For he is the embodiment of this and these very characteristics. Amen. We can't psych ourselves into this, folks. Doesn't happen that way. This kind of love is nothing less than the fruit of the Spirit. The only way we can do this for others is when we realize what has been done for us. Amen? Amen. So far, we've seen the importance of love and the acts of love. Paul will now show us the endurance of love. And it's all summed up in three words. 
Look at the first three words of verse 8. This is something you could even memorize. <laughs> three words. Love never fails. Don't you just love that? Just go ahead and repeat that to yourself. Audibly say it. Go ahead. Now think of you when you say love never fails. Say it again. Love never fails. Yeah. I'm so thankful for that. How about you? Love never fails. Paul contrasted Christian love on the one hand and prophecy, tongues, and knowledge on the other. In this verse, he speaks of the never-ending, enduring power of agape love. In fact, agape love becomes and is an essential part of God's own nature, which is why it will continue forever, okay? Because what does John tell us? God is what? Love, right? And so love is never going to end, will go on forever. By this expression, Paul is indicates that those who devote themselves to the unconditional agape love end up involving themselves in something that is beyond the ordinary. I love that. Takes us beyond the natural. Takes us beyond our own selves and puts us in a supernatural place beyond the ordinary. In other words, even after the Lord's return, Christians will continue to share and enjoy and be touched by God's love as we spend an eternity with him. For this reason, Paul takes love to a special place. The experience of Christian love, as Paul defined it, is one of the few ways, listen to me, church, one of the few ways that we taste and see in part the perfection that still awaits us in full, in completeness, in the new heavens and the new earth. It awaits us. That love that never ends, that never fails. Look at the rest of verse 8 with me. He continues on and says, After love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul is saying prophet tongues, words of knowledge will one day go away. Why? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? In heaven, there will be no need for prophecy, no need for words of edification, exhortation, or comfort because everyone will be perfectly comforted and edified in heaven and will no longer need to be exhorted. Unknown tongues will no longer be needed because everything will be known in heaven. And words of knowledge will be swallowed up in the perfect knowledge that we'll have when we see Jesus. And Paul's going to use the term, as we'll see in a moment, face to face. Hallelujah. The Apostle John contrasted our current condition of partial knowledge with that of the future clarity, he says, dear friends, 
Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Now look at verse 10 with me. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. The Greek word teleos translates in our language as completeness. It's also the word that we would use for perfection. Okay, so it means the same thing. So Paul is saying... The imperfect understanding that Christians gain that we would have right now, the imperfect understanding that we gain through the gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge, things that we have right now, will disappear in the coming of completeness, in the coming of perfection. Even though Paul alluded to the gifts of prophecy and knowledge in the previous verse, he avoided speaking directly of them here. Why? Because instead he spoke of the benefit Christians receive from them in the here and now. It's like Paul is saying the gifts are not necessarily what disappear. It's like Paul is saying imperfect understanding is what disappears. At that point, Christians will put the gifts behind them when their need for them is gone when we're in eternity with Jesus Paul said that when completeness comes he would see face to face as we will see in verse 12 implying that completeness included his meeting a person when completeness came, Paul would gain a greater personal knowledge of someone who already had such knowledge of him. Someone of whom he has already been learning about, drawing unto through prophecy, tongues, and messages of knowledge. That person, of course, and obviously is, the one and only perfect one who has ever lived. Amen? Jesus Christ. The coming of completeness coincides with meeting the Lord in person. Anybody looking forward to that? Yes. Yeah. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put away the ways of childhood. I put them behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul makes two contrasts between what believers know now and what they will know in eternity by illustrating with human terms. First, a child talks, thinks, and reasons like a child. His or her understanding is incomplete. Makes sense, right? 
But when a child grows up, he or she matures. That's the idea anyway, right? In speech, in thought, and in reason. Putting away childish things. Now, before I go any further, I just want to comment real briefly here. I, I think, for me anyway, my opinion, reading between the lines, Paul, Paul just made a pretty interesting statement here as it pertained to the Corinthians in the first century. Imagine with me for a moment, you're one of those Corinthian brothers or sisters who were thinking that you were pretty, pretty spiritual, that you were all that spiritually, because you had certain gifts that you thought were the greater gifts. Remember, we've talked about this, and you thought you were, you were something, and then you just heard Paul tell you, you're just an immature child, <laughs> because you think you've got it all figured out. You, you don't know nothing. And what we're really going to know isn't fully known until we are with Jesus in eternity. So don't you know that at that point there were some egos that got bruised in Corinth. So now believers know only a little, Paul says, like children, but one day they will be able to put the, their present understanding behind them because they will understand everything clearly in the present because of where we are at that moment. In other words, hear me in this. The opinions we once held, the things we fought about, the issues on which we were once so dogmatic, these things will be replaced with a full knowledge and understanding that can come only when Christ returns, when we are face to face. Secondly, we only see God and the truth in part, and we only know God and truth in part. However, the day is coming when we shall know God even as he knows us, Paul says. It is love that will be perfected, that will bring the day of completeness to reality for all believers. It is love that will bring us into a face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus and into a perfect knowledge of truth. Paul's point, love is far superior Speaking to those Corinthians, first century speaking to us, love far superior than to the spiritual gifts. They were making the gifts the superior, the priority. That's why they didn't have love. Paul is saying, you've got to reverse that because you've got it backwards. Verse 13, great verse. How many looked at you versions versus the day today? Anybody? Here it is. <laughs> and now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul has shown us the importance of love, the acts of love, the endurance of them now, and now the supremacy of love. Love is supreme. Here's the deal. When he mentions faith, hope, and love, faith, 
You see, faith looks back. Faith tells me Jesus came. Faith allows me to embrace what Jesus did for me on the cross. Faith reminds me that my sins are forgiven. Therefore, I don't have to worry about or be haunted by my past. Faith does that for me. Hope, well, hope looks forward. Hope tells me Jesus is coming back. Hope reminds me I don't have to be upset or uptight about the future. Now, love, though, love looks around. Love tells me Jesus is here. Love frees me in the present. I like what one commentator has written. He says, many believers have a mattress spirituality. <laughs> that is, knowing their sins are forgiven, they have no question about their past. Knowing they're going to heaven, they have no question about their future. It's the present that presents problems. Like a mattress, they're firm on both ends, but they sag in the middle. <laughs> as essential as faith and hope are, Paul singles out love as the greatest virtue because it is only through love that we are able to respond to God and to others correctly, biblically, spiritually, presently. Amen? You see, the person who lacks faith will not be able to love in agape love in the present because he or she will be paralyzed by the hurts and the sins of their past. On the other hand, the person who lacks hope will not be able to love with agape love in the present because he or she will be too worried about their retirement account in the future. Only those who have put their past behind them through the power of the cross, only the person who looks forward to the future through the promise of heaven can truly love in the present. Far too often, I think, my opinion, we have turned 1 Corinthians 13 into little more than a sentimental, framed piece of poetry, something to hang on our wall or wear on a keychain or have printed on a T-shirt or put on a bumper sticker. Pretty words to admire. But Paul meant for us to take these words to heart, to cherish them, to meditate upon them, and ultimately, and ultimately, to allow them to transform our lives from the inside out. In this passage, Paul emphasizes the one thing that will remain throughout eternity, love. It seems to make sense to me then that we ought to live our lives in such a way where we invest the bulk of our focus on that which will last forever. What do you think? The ability to love can come only from love's divine source. So let's as often as necessary, church, a fresh recall and a fresh the, the great love that has 
that God has shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's depend on the inner working of his Holy Spirit to produce in us a genuine and consistent agape love for others. For after all, as Paul said in leaning and going into this 13th chapter, it is the most excellent way. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning and once again, I, I am trusting that your word has spoken to our hearts. And I'm standing on the promise of your word, which tells us that your your word, Lord, never returns void. And I'm asking God that you have seen to it and will continue to see to it by your spirit that those words land in our hearts not to be forgotten, not to be argued with, but if they came with conviction, then may we do our part in responding to that. Encouragement and conviction, I think, go hand in hand because they both produce what you want to see happen in our lives, change and transformation. Most of us, if we were to be honest, most of the time fall way short of this kind of love that we've talked about today. We make so many other things so more important. And typically at that point, it's because we have put ourselves up front. Help us, God, to get over ourselves. Help us to be emptied of ourselves so that you could come and fill us with you and your love that we might make a difference in this world. For your glory, for your kingdom, for your name's sake, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up, lift up my heart.